This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest today is Teddy Wilson. He is the author of the Substack publication Radical Reports. And in the conversation you're about to hear, which was recorded on January 17, 2023, we have a wide-ranging conversation with regards to Teddy's area of expertise, which are the far-right groups that are active in multiple countries and in multiple ways. We talk first about how language comes into play when you are discussing these groups and covering them. Then we talk about the January 8th insurrection in Brazil, how it connects and doesn't connect to the Brazil insurrection, how many of these authoritarian movements are fundamentally anti-democratic, as well as, ironically or paradoxically, transnational. There's a whole bunch in this conversation, and uh, it's a wide-ranging conversation. This is definitely more of a live-to-tape conversation that we just recorded yesterday, and there was only a little bit of light editing done to improve some uh, some of the audio, as well as to remove some of the ums and uhs and things like that. But otherwise, it's a pretty straightforward live-to-tape conversation that I had with Teddy just yesterday. Uh, you'll hear this on Thursday the 19th. I also want to tell you, before we get to that conversation, about an event that I'll be a part of in Philadelphia on February uh, 11th. I will be uh, with Bradley Onishi from Straight White American Jesus, as well as um, the New Evangelicals on February 11th in Philadelphia. Uh, There is a link in the show notes that will give you all the details about how to register for that event, and more information about that will be posted soon. You can also find out more about that at postevangelicalpost.com. This show, Exvangelical, is a publication of Postevangelical Post LLC, You can support this show for $5 a month or $50 a year at postevangelicalpost.com. 25% of net proceeds are donated. Learn all about that. Find other writings, other episodes of this show, uh, and a whole bunch more over at postevangelicalpost.com. All right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Teddy Wilson, author of the Substack publication Radical Reports, a newsletter that provides research, analysis, and intelligence on the radical right. He's a journalist with a decade of experience covering the U.S. Christian right and the conservative movement. Previously, he was the U.S. investigations editor at Open Democracy and research analyst at Policy Political Research Associates and staff reporter at Rewired News Group. Teddy, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Blake. I've been a listener of this podcast for a while, so it's a real pleasure to get to talk with you about all these different subjects that we're going to get into. Yeah, Yeah, likewise. We connected a while back on Twitter, and you graciously invited me to a Twitter space that you regularly host to talk about the things that you cover. And I'm happy to meet and talk to you a little bit about this. I would like to start out, though, just I'm always interested when I talk to journalists about how they get their start on a particular beat. So what drew you to covering the radical right? And what was it about that topic that just piqued your interest and then led to you developing this expertise and focus as a journalist? Right. My journalism career started after I left the military in 2007, and I had gotten involved with various types of activism, and that led me to focus my energies more towards kind of journalism as far as the topics that I was interested in as far as activism. And I started out in community radio, and so that's where my career began learning journalism as a trade, learning how to operate various aspects of a radio studio, programming, different news programs and discussion programs. 
And so that led me to doing more writing and reporting for various kind of news outlets, freelance, working for organizations like Free Speech Radio News, which is unfortunately no longer exists. But then after working for the Texas Independent, I went to work for Rewired.News, excuse me, Rewired News Group, covering reproductive rights, primarily focusing on the anti-abortion movement and anti-abortion legislation. And a lot of that was directed or lobbied on behalf of by the Christian right and various organizations within the broader U.S. Christian right. And that kind of started me on that path to wanting to understand the American right in a more broad sense. And so over the course of the next several years, both through report for Rewired News Group and then some of the other organizations and publications that I worked for over the years, that kind of honed my interest and how I, and the topics that I wanted to cover. And so that led me to starting this newsletter to broadly focus on what I characterize as the radical right and all the various sectors that fall under that. So that's the shortened version of how I got to where I am today and how I, how I decided to focus on covering the radical right. Yeah. And so much of what you said, especially with regard to the reproductive rights and the, the way in which, in particular in the United States, the Christian right is, has been a major opponent of reproductive rights in the United States. What I am curious, as you continue to focus on this, how this is, I'm sure this is a wonky question, but this is a wonky show. How do you delineate between different terms, like when you're covering something or when you're either when you are summarizing something for your audience or, or even trying to understand how these things relate to one another as you're covering them. How do you delineate between sometimes saying Christian right, sometimes saying radical right? Are those modifiers real? Are they important? Or is there such a, a sort of bleed between the back and forth between these different groups that a lot of times they're so, they become synonymous? It's, I'm always interested in how we use that sort of language to talk about political, whether it's a group or a person, right? So I'm curious what your take is on that. Right. And I think that's actually a very kind of important subject to get into. I think language, right, and how we de describe various movements is very important. And I think it's <laughs> important for both clarity and accuracy, right? And mm -hmm. So the radical right, that's a term that I use as an umbrella term to kind of encapsulate all the broad kind of right-wing, far-right movements that are go from anything from movements that seek to undermine voting rights or undermine LGBTIQ rights or undermine reproductive rights to those movements that are explicitly racist and white supremacists and seek to advance extremist violence and even as far as accelerationism to seek an mm -hmm. eventual overthrow of the current government. So the through line of all these movements is that they are fundamentally anti-democratic, right? And that's why I choose to use that term radical right as an umbrella term for all the movements that I focus on. And there are differences within terminology and who tends to use those terms. So far right is a term that I've actually adopted more and more it's a term that is used often in academia, often in the European context. They're more likely journalists and academics that study these movements in Europe and other contexts are more likely to use the term far right than they are to use the term like right wing or even radical right. I think another place where definitions matter is when you are talking about the various parts of white supremacist movements, right? There's a difference between white supremacist movements and, and a subsection of that would be white nationalist movements, right? And so a white nationalist is someone that wants to essentially create a white ethnostate, right? And there's even variations within that. Some want to be able to have essentially whites only rule. Some want to commit what amounts to like 
ethnic genocide, right? right? So there are differences there. And even within topics that you cover here, I think there's a difference between the U.S. Christian right in a broad sense and what I would term as Christian nationalist, right? Not mm-hmm. while they are sometimes used interchangeably, particularly within the media, the mainstream media, I think there's, mm-hmm. it's important to understand and identify the importance of terminology when you're talking about specific ideologies. And I think a lot of your audience would appreciate this. If you're talking about various theological movements within the Christian church with a capital C, right? You would, you would never kind of conflate, right? Pentecostal movements, right? With just by using just broad terms, like maybe charismatic, right? Charismatic absolutes kind of a lot within that, right? That's a kind of broad term that you can Mm -hmm. unpack. And so I think there are important nuances and differences, whether you're talking about theology or ideology, Yeah, I think are important to get to and discuss mostly for kind of both clarity and accuracy, right? If you want to really tell the truth about who these different movements are, it's important to Mm -hmm. use language to describe them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for going into that detail. So radical right is the sort of umbrella term. And then as you cover a particular group or individual, then you will assign whatever sort of appropriate language represents their perspective or the type of movement or sub-movement. We there's all sorts of there's all sorts of ways to to slice and dice all of these different things, but I really appreciated what you said about how a lot of these at the core of the thing that that these things have in common is that they're fundamentally anti-democratic, and then there can be variances of all sorts of whether they're overtly racist or whether they whether they are happy to align themselves advantageously with racists or whatever it might be. That's all very helpful. But at the end, the thing that binds the radical right together is being anti-democratic and wanting to impose a particular type of generally minority rule on the population. Right. Anti-democratic and authoritarian. And it's also Mm -hmm. important to acknowledge that they're when you talk about these different terms and how we categorize different sectors of the radical right, there are disagreements, particularly within academia, kind of research circles of how you mm-hmm. categorize and what language to use. Like mm-hmm. Erin Below, who has written a lot about the militia movement, and she's written a book called The Handbook to White Supremacy, which I recommend. She calls, she categorizes a lot of the kind of what we would think of the militia movement groups like say the Oath Keepers and other militia groups as part of a broader white power movement, right? So the Oath Keepers aren't explicitly white supremacists, but they're part of a broader white power movement. And not all of those people that either research or study these movements within academia and the research community, not everyone agrees with her thesis that they're all part of the broader white power movement. And I think it's important to understand that, too, for your listeners, that there is vigorous debate and discussion about how we classify various parts of this movement. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think language is such an interesting lens to bring to these sorts of things because of the way in which, you know, especially even within the context of talking about things for this audience, the way in which like Christian nationalism sort of shot up in popularity as a term. All the while, like a lot of this has been studied under other names and other terms for a very long time. But then also the rate at which we talk about things online, it's almost like the burn rate of a word's value is accelerated now because we're overexposed to it. And then there's a counter narrative. And it's all very fascinating to me as someone who I'm ever since Elon's takeover, I'm far less on Twitter than I used to be, but still it's like, it's definitely interesting to, to have these conversations and try to delineate what's the best way to talk about these things in the most accurate way. But then again, the, to move on to the next thing I wanted to talk about beyond just the language, because I, I do think that is, is really valuable and actually segues into the next thing, which is our main point of discussion, which is the Brazil insurrection that we saw on January 8th. We initially there we initially tried to talk the same week, but that we had technical difficulties. So we're a little bit removed from a little bit more removed from it now, but it's still just a little over a week away. We're talking on the 17th of January. And one of the things that 
really caught my eye in the immediate commentary following what was happening on January 8th is you put out a tweet saying, this is your periodic reminder that far-right authoritarian movements are transnational and the events that are unfolding in Brazil were influenced by events in the U.S. and that future events in the U.S. may be influenced by recent events in Germany, Norway, and Brazil. And I thought that was, th there's a ton packed into that tweet and, and things that feel almost contradictory that far-right authoritarian movements, including nationalist movements, are actually transnational. Uh, and let's start there. The fact that we saw this for this insurrection happen in Brazil, how is it informed by what, what Brazilians saw happening in the U.S. in 2021? Right. Well, I actually think it's useful to start even before before okay. that. I think yeah. it's useful to think about this in the context of what we've seen in the past four or five years. And I think in late 2015 and then through 2016 and 2017, we saw that the candidacy of Donald Trump and the eventual of, of Donald Trump as president mm -hmm. wasn't merely a isolated incident of rising right-wing populism within the United States, right? We saw rising right-wing or far-right populist movements around the world, I think, it's important to begin there where we saw right-wing figures, whether it be in England with the Boris Johnson becoming prime minister in the midst of the kind of raging debate there about Brexit, right? And then we saw mm -hmm. the other kind of far-right authoritarian figures take power in places like Poland and Hungary. And then we saw the election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who a lot of people have taken to call like the tropical version of Donald Trump, right? And so I think it's important to begin there to understand how far-right authoritarian movements and this kind of right-wing populist agitation was happening not just in the United States, but in a global context. And right. then to, to further paint the picture, over the course of the past decade or more, we've seen various types of far-right authoritarian movements within the United States and within Europe and within Latin America and within Africa and other places, we have seen that they have adapted their strategies and tactics and learned and evolved and essentially learned from what worked in different places, right? We've seen adaptation of various uh, movement strategies, whether it's borrowing from various far-right strategies in the US and those strategies being used in Europe or vice versa. And so I think that's important to understand that, that they are learning from each other in some ways directly, right? I think a lot of people will point to famously how often Steve Bannon, right? This far-right figure who was very important in the election of Donald Trump, was a White House advisor, ran a far-right website called Breitbart for a long time. Mm. He's been very involved in trying to connect with various far-right leaders around the world, particularly in Europe. And so there is a two-way street of both learning from watching what's going on in other countries, but also these leaders also connect in various ways both in person and online. Another good example of that is the spreading of the QAnon conspiracy theory. So for some of your listeners that may not be aware, QAnon is this kind of really broad kind of conspiracy theory that essentially these elites within governments and corporations control the world and it involves child sacrifice and all kinds of really far out there nonsense. And what yeah. we've seen is that conspiracy theory, not only has it spread within far-right online spaces within the United States, but it's also spread outside of the United States border and taken on different kind of homegrown versions of itself. We've seen that in Germany and Japan, and Japan, where oftentimes QAnon in the mainstream press is referred to the Japanese version of QAnon or the German version of QAnon. But we had talked to experts in far-right movements from those places. 
what they'll tell you is, especially in Japan, is that it's not as simple as saying it's the far or the Japanese version of QAnon that is taken on a whole other flavor and it's really radically different in Japan than it looks here, right? And so mm -hmm. that's just to illustrate how these different parts of these movements can really adapt and change, but they are interconnected. And that's why what I mean by transnational is that they are interconnected and they evolve and adapt and they learn from each other. Yeah. And have you, in the sort of additional lead time that, that, that we've had, it's still only been just over a, a week since the insurrection in Brazil occurred. Have you seen more evidence of that sort of from one another come to light as far as what we know about the groups that participated in this insurrection? And there was <clears throat> just as one that, that I saw was from a different substack from, I think, Word and Way. They pulled out a handful of images that Getty had published that seemed to indicate that there was some religious nationalism at play. But, it, but I am curious if there has been any other evidence of that sort of either direct involvement or cheerleading or, or vocal support of the Brazil's insurrection from people here in the United States. Right. And what I'll say is that, first of all, there's still a lot of reporting about what happened to Brazil that is trickling out. We're learning more and more about what happened on January 8th. And so by the time your listeners hear this, there'll probably be more new information about what we know. Um, and I think there are a lot of similarities and a lot and some and a lot of differences between what happened on January 6, 2021 and January 8th, 2023. Mm -hmm. I would say where the similarity, what is similar is definitely the role that kind of religious nationalism play. Christian national uh, nationalism did play a role in both. I think it might have been animated differently, right? I think an important piece of context to understand about Brazil is that the, kind of what made up the base of Bolsonaro's support was definitely a rising number of evangelicals within Brazil, particularly the Pentecostal movement. A lot of folks might not understand that Pentecostalism is the fastest growing religious movement in Latin America right now. And so that played a really important role. I would say that at least from what I've seen and being able to gather from, of course, read the same article from Word and Way, and my deep understanding of January 6th is there is less of a blending of kind of Christian nationalism with other kind of various spiritual elements and conspiracy theories than what I've seen in, within January 6th. Right. Mm, it's definitely mm -hmm. what most people would think of when they think of Christian nationalists, particularly kind of various types of sim sim uh, symbols, whether blowing the Jaf Jafar horn. Yeah, the shofar and yeah, then the, uh, the Shafar yeah. horn and the laying of hands and prayers and circles. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of kind of mysticism and kind of QAnon influenced kind of spirituality interfused. I didn't see a lot of evidence in that kind of activity in Brazil. What I'll say is another example of both how they are similar and it's simultaneously how they are different. So what we've learned since January 6th was about how much planning and organization was going on, particularly among these far-right extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters, right? There was a lot of planning and orchestrating mm -hmm. going on prior to January 6th. Now, a similar thing happened, but I'm unaware yet if there was any kind of uh, similar groups within Brazil, far-right militia groups or far-right extremist groups that were doing similar planning. But we know that in the week and days leading up to January 8th, there was these encampments that formed around the Brazilian military base in Brasilia, right? This army base where a lot of Bolsonaro's supporters were essentially camping out, several hundred people gathering together near these military bases, which is where they actually walked in kind of this march of procession down to the to the government buildings. So it wasn't it wasn't just a spontaneous thing where everybody came out of their homes. Right there was gathering and camping together and obvious coordination and planning about what was going to happen in the coming days. 
What remains to be seen is how much of that was being led by any particular groups, how much was it happening online, if there was particular forums that were being used to coordinate communication. There's still a lot of kind of unanswered questions about the planning and coordination, but I think we will probably get faster answers to those questions than we did from January 6th because of the response by the Brazilian government, right? On that same day, on January 8th, like hundreds of protesters were being arrested, right? It wasn't the same scene that played out on January 6th, where very few protesters were arrested on the same, or riders were arrested on the same day on, mm -hmm. during the Capitol riot. There was several hundred people arrested on January 8th, I think several hundred more arrested within the next following days. There was a, a much quicker response from law enforcement. And hopefully we'll get some of those answers in a much quicker succession than we did following January 6th, whereas it took several months of investigations and both from the government and investigative journalists and researchers to really mm -hmm. understand the full picture of what was happening. Uh, yeah. Are you seeing similar instances of Mara's party trying to inter interfere with investigations or stall things? Even if you don't want to use that, that strong of language, they're from some members of the Republican Party, there was a, a intense disinterest in in examining what led to January 6th and who was involved. And that's what made the investigation, the investigation that did conclude with the end of the last Congress prior to them making their recommendations to other branches of government and things like that's what made that distinctly more political. Is that sort of same thing happening in Brazilian politics that you're able to, that, that you've come across, or is that just something that, that we don't necessarily know yet? Well, I think at least early on, there seems to be more bipartisan or cross-party unity in denouncing what happened in Brazil. I think I within the first few days, there was a government commission that I think voted essentially unanimously to to denounce what had happened. And I haven't as of yet seen the same kind of partisan gap between political figures within Brazil mm -hmm. coming to the aid of Bolsonaro. There doesn't seem to be that same kind of phenomenon that we saw in the U.S. But it's difficult to tell. It's that first week or so after January 8th in Brazil. And if you remember Within the first few days after January 6th, there was plenty of Republican politicians, members of Congress that had come out and denounced not just the rioters, but also Donald Trump. I think a famous example is the now Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, right, gave a speech on the House floor denouncing what had happened and denouncing Donald Trump. But within mm -hmm. a week or two, he had gone down to visit the former president or when a, within a week or two, I think, of Joe Biden being inaugurated, he had gone down and visited the former president in Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it remains to be seen whether or not we see any kind of similar turnarounds among the politicians within Bolsonaro's political party, or if we see the same kind of gaslighting that we've seen from the Republican Party that we've seen over the course of the last couple of years. There's just, I think there's a, I have a hesitancy to make any too broad sweeping statements Oh, sure. <laughs> this, I mean, in, yeah. in large part, yeah. informed by what we saw happen in, after, in the wake of January 6th, right? Yeah, American politics since the turn of the millennium is like, it, it's unimaginable and then the unimaginable happens. So that's certainly, certainly reasonable and wise to not, to want to pontificate on that. Think about it, even last year, could you imagine a Republican politician completely lying and fabricating basically his entire life and career to get elected <laughs> to Congress and then essentially have members of his own party, a local party call for his resignation, but the national leaders look at that like it's <laughs> yeah, just yeah, when it's... you think it's kind of reached a new low, you are then surprised by something else, right? So. Yeah. And we're talking about George Santos, <laughs> if that's not clear, which is just incredible that has he has completely lost local support, but because at the national level, they need that every single Republican vote, they're not willing to, to call for his resignation, which is absolutely wild, but that is where we are politically. And let's, let's broaden things out a little bit. And I know, 
I, I don't want to to ask you to like to hypothesize or predict the future or anything like that. But as far as some of the things that that we're seeing, what are some of the developments on the sort of far right that you think are more, I guess, more on the table now? Because it because the thing that in in media windows and poli sci informed spaces online. Especially during, especially during the Trump campaign and Trump presidency, there was all this talk about the Overton window and what becomes acceptable in public, polite society and that sort of thing. We we now have two major instance incidences, first in the United States, and then now in another democratic country, and it's instances of insurrection or of people marching and both being from supporters on the right side of politics. What's sort of, what does that do to either the rhetoric that, that happens online, the sort of organizing that happens online or elsewhere? Like what is the, what are the effects of something like this happening not just once but now twice and what what does that enable or give confidence to these to these far right radical right type groups or does that make them or do you think that they may try to pull back and then push forward later it's just it's such a it's such a hard thing for me to think about then, but you, as part of your coverage, like you, you cover a number of these major outlets and some of the other smaller ones that, that, that talk about these things in, within those far right environments. So I'm curious, what, where do you, what do you think this again enables or makes, puts within the realm of possibility? First of all, if you can't speculate wildly about future events on a podcast, then what's the point? Yes, that's what we're here for. <laughs> I would say that. I think one important thing to note is that, yes, you've had January 6th in the United States and January 8th in Brazil, but those are the only the most kind of visible types of the event, these events, right? I think we have to remember that just a few months ago, there was a thwarted attempted coup in Germany by far-right nationalists there associated with neo-Nazis and other parts of the far-right that included members of the German police and members of the German military and former members of parliament and a judge. Like, And so I think there has been an increasing number of these incidents of the far-right, not just opposing kind of democratic norms and questioning the legitimacy of free and fair elections, but also moving towards taking violent action against the state, right, to install their own preferred government. I would also say that I think what I find most worrying is that we've also seen an increase in political violence and far-right extremist violence not just within a political context but on the ground in various forms right there's been so many different kind of violent street actions taken by groups like the proud boys right which has happened increasingly over the last few years and now we're seeing it target the lgbtiq community more and more right you know these protests of drag shows or other lgbtiq events where you're seeing these far-right groups show up including white supremacist neo-fascist groups like groups like patriot front and uh, texas vanguard these are neo-nazis showing up to these kinds of rallies and then we just had the arrest of a failed far-right Republican lawmaker from New Mexico over the weekend, Salomon Pena, Pena out of who was arrested for orchestrating shootings of four Democratic Party government officials there in New Mexico. I think there was two members of the state legislature and two members of a county commission. He essentially hired a hitman to go shoot up their houses. Fortunately, no one was injured or killed in these shootings that happened, I think, at the end of December, beginning of January. But I think political violence and ideologically driven far-right extremist violence is becoming, is happening more and more. And I think it's being more and more accepted within the far-right. And so I think 
that really has me worried as I think about what's coming in the next mm -hmm. year or several years. I think one of the things that I've always thought about January 6th is that for me, I think when you look at how the far right talks about January 6th, right? And not so much whether it was a riot or whether there was violence or why they were there, but the way they talk about the people that participated in January 6th, right? They are often portrayed as quote unquote Christian patriots. The people that were, that have been arrested and charged and in many cases now incarcerated are often referred to as political prisoners by the far right. I think it's, I would argue that January 6th has become similar, viewed similarly the way by the far right as they viewed other events that happened in the 90s, such as Ruby Ridge, where member of Christian identity, kind of white nationalist person, members of his family was shot and killed by ATF and FBI agents. And then also the siege of Waco and the Branch Davidian that was just a few years later in 1995. And so mm -hmm. when you think about it in that context, the next kind of part of that progression is, oh, excuse me, Waco happened in 93. The next part of that progression is Oklahoma City. Right. When you look at what motivated Timothy McVeigh and everything that led up to that, I think we're headed in that direction right now. And I think it is not a question of if some kind of far right extremist violence act of mass casualty event, it's not a question of if, but when that may happen. So that's has me very concerned. And then on top of that, I think. When we think about these kind of insurrectionist events, we think about them happening in national capitals, right? Whether they're happening in Washington, D.C. or Brasilia or in, the, I think it was Berlin and Munich in Germany. But we've also seen these kinds of events happen in state capitals, right? Whether it's the... Yeah, in Michigan. Right. In Michigan, so. we saw similar events in, I think, Idaho and, and maybe Oregon and Washington and a few other places. And I would also consider a distinct possibility those similar events could happen in, say, county courthouses or even a local school board, right? We're seeing those similar strategies being used on those local levels. So I think there's a two-pronged thing that I'm very worried about, and that's far-right extremist violence, mass casualty event, and then these insurrection-type events happening on a more localized level, and also... The possibility that those two things could happen simultaneously. And so I think it, not to be too apocalyptic in, in, in my rhetoric, but I think these are really distinctive threats that people need to reckon with. And we haven't really been reckoning with them as a country. And mm -hmm. so I think it's important to the folks to keep these in the forefront of their mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that does lead me to what is two uh, sort of like a, a two-part final question which really is just how we tried we just being the other parts of the population that aren't aligned with the with these groups that want to that want there to be a society that is more accepting that is not based on white nationalism or any other sort of racist or ableist or sexist type of type of worldview is the thing that I struggle with is as someone who a lot of this show, when it comes down to it, a, many of the episodes of this show is about how someone changes their mind, right? Generally, it's someone from a conservative place that moves to a more progressive place, at least with regard to their faith, if not with regard to social beliefs and things like that. But one of the things that, that the far right does well, that many conservative outlets do well, whether and I do think about this primarily and within a media context is that they keep up this narrative of persecution despite all of these political victories, whether it's a legitimate political political victory from someone being elected or passing a bill or I don't know, putting three people on the Supreme Court for the next 30 years. Just a, a random example, all of these th or people alleging that they didn't lose the election and and all of these different things, they find different ways to motivate their base to 
push on those angry buttons. And at the same time, one of the things that we know historically is that many of the people that reshaped the right in the 60s and 70s, at least here in the United States, people like Paul Weyrich and others, they looked to their counterparts on the left and saw their organizing tactics and emulated them and copied them. But then something happened along the way where like they took that playbook and ran with it and to great success. But then it's it seems like it's hard for people to it, and this is just a this isn't a straightforward question. And this is just what everyone struggles with regard to how to motivate people whenever they've got life in front of them, whether it's raising a family or having a job or whatever, to motivate them to the same degree that people that are that have these very toxic beliefs are motivated <laughs> to do things like storm a capital, whether it's the federal capital or a state capital or anything in between. So I'm curious how like how does the right keep using the same playbook over and over to keep their people motivated? And given that they are so that also one of one of the things that we saw even within the even within the recent house speaker election is that they can find the weaknesses in institutions and exploit them so what are the way what are some of the ways that that we can respond to this even if it's either educating ourselves or whatever and i know this is a massive societal question <laughs> But as someone who's observed these types of groups for so long and from so many different angles, I'm curious as to your thoughts in whichever way you want to take this, because I know it's a big, I'm teeing this up in a very broad sense. However you want to take this question, feel free to answer it, whichever way. <laughs> so how does the progressive movement defeat the far right? Let me see if I can answer this in a succinctly way. Well, I think you mentioned a lot in there and I will just take out a few parts of that to focus on. Yeah, please do, because I know that I painted a very broad <laughs> brush. I started talking and then just kept going. So. <laughs> well, first I'll say that as far as the power of the right to continually organize, I think it's difficult to underestimate the importance of narratives to the far right, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of these apocalyptic narratives that they use to motivate and organize and also narrative of victimization and uh, being constantly under threat. And I think at the core of that goes to the core kind of white nationalist, or excuse me, Christian nationalist narrative, also white nationalist, really, if we're being honest, yes. of the idea of this country as being founded in four white Protestant Christians, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you start with that beginning, then that means that any movement that seeks to democratize the country and to further the cause of equality and to further the cause, the cause of diversity within the country is by definition, right, pushing back against that and is challenging that notion that America is a white Christian nation, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Right. When you begin with that, then it's really easy to continue to use that narrative for essentially any issue, right? Anything that is challenging the white Christian hegemony of the United States is, by definition, an enemy of the country, right? Which is, I think, goes to the core of why so many white evangelicals were willing and able to support and vote for Donald Trump despite the fact that he is the antithesis of everything that they have ever said that they believe and hold dear, right? It doesn't matter. He has said and professed to do what they want him to do to achieve mm -hmm. all these goals. Therefore, no matter how bad he is, he's always going to be better than the Democrats, right? No matter what. Right. And so yep. that's at the core of that. I would say to the kind of other kind of broad question about how the progressive movement and people of faith that are that care about social justice and care about these issues should push back against the far right and this authoritarian movement in our country. I think one of the right's biggest assets 
is that it has poured so much money into kind of its in, in, in institutional architecture, right? Whether Absolutely. it's a lot of people are very aware of kind of the amount of money get, that gets poured into right-wing media, but also think about all the money that has gotten poured into the last 30 or 40 years into conservative Christian colleges, right? And are there yes. conservative Christian organizations, whether it's these big legal firms like Alliance Defending Freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's big parachurch organizations and lobbying or organizations like Focus on the Family and Family Research Council and these state family policy organizations, right? So much money and institutional support has been pushed into that, right? And so all of the kind of these local kind of right-wing activists and far-right activists get a lot of support from the national level, right? You can always, they, it seems to be always you, when you dig above, below the surface, you're always finding a lot of right-wing, far-right money flowing into these different groups. And yes. so with that in mind, I would say as far as the progressive movement and the left more broadly, I think it's, you don't really need to reinvent the wheel. There's been just a really staggering amount of organizing that has happened on the left, on the local level over the last couple of decades. And there's lots of really good examples of victories that have happened from that organizing. Think about mm -hmm. all the states that have passed, what do you call them, uh, state ballot measures to increase the, the minimum wage to $15 per hour, right? That's mm -hmm. local organizing and local movement building. Think about all of the organizing that has happened around reproductive justice to push back against Republican culture controlled states that have banned abortion. Many of those states have had local organizers create their abortion funds to help pay for folks to get access to abortion care. Think about all the organizing that has happened on the local level among indigenous populations. Think about Standing Rock and all of the organizing and protests that happened there. There are many examples of folks doing kind of grass, local grassroots on the ground activism and organizing. And there are many examples of, of that working on a local level. So I think, broadly speaking, the left needs to understand that all of this money that the left pours into like various kinds of national organizations, that's not bad in and of itself, right? But much more money needs to be poured into the to these grassroots groups that are doing kind of the work on the ground with mm -hmm. very limited resources, very limited financial resources. And I think if the progressive movement and these big foundations and wealthy donors would listen to the grassroots and understand, okay, this, these people need our support, then you could replicate that, I think, more easily nationwide. The progressive movement doesn't need to think top down. You need to think bottom up as far as, mm -hmm. and those movements, I think that's, you defeat right-wing authoritarianism by supporting democratic movements, right? Mm -hmm. The answer to kind of authoritarianism and anti-democratic movements is to foster democratic movements and democratic inst institutions. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think, yeah, yeah, that that's, for me, that's the answer is to understand there's just so many people across the country that are already doing this work that the answer is to give these groups and, and activists more resources to push back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Many of those sorts of struggles within capitalist society fall down, you know, come down to capital. Who has some that can pay for someone to to take the time to do something meaningful on that local level or wherever else. But I think, thank you for for answering that very broad question, because I, I think it's it's great given your breadth of experience and the way in which you've covered these types of things and your own involvement within various types of activism. I think it's always interesting to ask broad questions too, just to get a sense, because a lot of times, I maybe this is just me projecting, but sometimes with the way in which our own sort of media ecosystems works, 
there's so much happening all the time at such a rapid pace that it's hard to orient yourself if you're always aware of it all the time. Well, so there's also just one more thing I think for your listeners, because a lot of times it can feel overwhelming, right? When you mm-hmm. are seeing all of this happen and you want to do something that helps change things and you want to do something that, that matters, right? But it can feel and like it can make you feel helpless, right? Mm-hmm. And I think an important thing to do is to take that energy and to put it into like whatever it is, some small kind of piece of activism that you can do on your local community, right? That's whether it's volunteering as an escort at an abortion clinic in your city or volunteering to answer the phones for an abortion fund or whether or not it's volunteering at, for your church if they have an immigrant rights network and helping folks that are refugees coming to your town or people from the border, right? Look for kind of local grassroots activism that you can do and understand that kind of any little thing that you can do matters, right? You don't know how much you may affect people just be by being there to answer the phone for somebody, right? To being there mm-hmm. to talk to somebody on the phone if they're in a crisis situation and they need information about whatever. I think any kind of piece of that you, you can put your heart and mind towards, that will, I think, will go a long ways towards alleviating that feeling of overwhelm and helplessness that we all feel sometimes. You don't mm-hmm. have to solve our country's problem by yourself. You can, every little thing you do on a local level is part of it. So I think for listeners that are, might feel overwhelmed by the scope of this conversation. Um, yeah. No, yeah. you can do lots of little stuff and it matters. Yeah. It always matters. Yeah. Thank you for adding that too. That's very important to, know, to, to remember it and have in mind is that there's lots of ways to contribute things. Teddy, thank you very much for taking time today to talk to me about all of these sort of big, big things, these big events and big problems and all these things, and then bringing it back to, to, to what we can do on our own as well. Where can people find Radical Reports? Where else can they find you online? Anything else you want to mention here? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter or basically all the other social networks. I have the same handle. It's a report by Will. And you can find my newsletter, Radical Reports, if you go to radicalreports.substack.com. There's a free and paid version of the newsletter. I think most of my newsletter posts are free. I do have some paid posts. I usually give a preview to my free subscribers. And I think currently, if you want to be a a paid subscriber to Radical Reports, I think it's $5 a month or $50 per year. So not too expensive. But yeah, that's the best way that you can find me on social media and support my work. But yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise, thank you very much, Teddy. All right.